I've seen the mule. He's 37 feet tall, and he breathes fire and shoots laser out of his eyeballs. <laughs> Welcome back to season two, episode three. I'm very excited this week. We've got a lot of cool stuff to cover. I am your host this evening, Peter, calling from Long Island, New York, along with my colleagues. Dan from Los Angeles. Jason from Connecticut. Jason, you sound less than enthused. Would you want to give that another try for our audience? And Jason from Connecticut. That's more <laughs> like it. That's the Such Nerds podcast energy I'm talking about. <laughs> So now that we've gotten Jason fully awake, why don't we have some fan mail? Absolutely. So we do have one, uh, one favorite. It's a little light this season. I'm hoping that we didn't put a bunch of people off because we got so much fan mail, guys, <laughs> that we were unable to answer all of it. Yeah. And so from the bottom of my heart, guys, I can only accept so many locks of hair. Okay. Like mm. it's, it's really freaking my family out at this point. Mm. Especially with all the weird crafts that I make with it, but that's beside. Yeah, but Jake, Jake can use your locks of hair, maybe. Uh, yes, can you send them all to me, Peter, and I will tape them together, and then uh, and then apply them to my scalp because it's getting cold here in Connecticut now, and uh, you know I don't have much going on up there to uh, fend off the uh, those. Uh, the elements. Fend off the elements. Yes, thank you, Dan. Fend off the elements. So. Any help I can get, I'm uh, I'm a willing recipient. Okay, so in lieu of locks of hair, do we have a letter or even a email? Maybe a raven. Yeah. So to to Peter's point, yeah, I hope we didn't offend anybody that we didn't get to respond to in the first season, but we do welcome fan mail, and um, you know you can reach us anytime at suchnerds.com and send us uh, send us your questions, comments, or uh, general ponderings. So, uh, so our first fan mail of season two is actually a, a remnant of our finale episode. And, uh, I think that, uh, that unfortunately we could probably all weigh in on this, but there is one individual that this question is directed towards. And, uh, I should also mention that, uh, I believe this fan has written in in the past. This is uh, a note from hypnotized dot dot dot. Peter, can you please explain your new religion, Peterism, because I'd like to join ASAP. Okay, so it's it's really easy, guys. There's not a lot to go into. Basically, you acknowledge that I say the most important things and that my <laughs> co-hosts are really not even co-hosts. They're like, you know, they're just idolaters. Basically they're there to, for me to step on, to keep my feet warm as it were mm -hmm. at night. Are there, are there any barriers to entry Peter to become a Peterist? And I was also curious if there are any like competing, um, you know, I, I hate to use the word cult, but like what's going on there? <laughs> well, so I would say that the only real competitor that I have, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's this guy named Jesus Christ. And uh, he's probably the only real stiff competition that I have for being the best religion. So mm -hmm. that's why it's, it's an offset shoot from Peter with his two theses, which apparently the first one being that he's very important. And the second one that, that we are worse than him. So <laughs> The only thing I, I don't know. I'll bite. Is putting, is putting my co-hosts down who are arguably smarter and handsomer than I am. So Argu Arguably. Arguably. Anything's yeah. arguable, I guess you could say. Yeah, right? I mean, if you turn off the lights and you stop listening to them, they sound a lot smarter and are a lot more attractive. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, all right, well, Jay, I uh, I have a little surprise for it. I actually have a piece of fan mail, and it's directed to not you or I, but our other co-host. And okay, let it rip. I'm not I'm I'm not hurt. I'll just let me just get a grab of tissue here. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, go. <laughs> I'll be all right. Go do what you got to do. I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. It's actually directed to all of us. It, it says to such nerds. Um, and uh, I think it's an interesting one. It says, dear such nerds, Russell, why do you sound so different this season? Russell, what do you have to say <laughs> about that? <laughs> uh, I regret to inform you, but but uh, I'm, I murdered Russ and he's in my basement and I'm impostering. And <laughs> I think what Russell is trying to say is that he has impersonating. Like that's the word. I'm impersonating Russell. Imposterating. Imposterating. <laughs> <laughs> all right well that was some wonderful viewer mail now that we know the true fate of russell damn why don't you uh, go ahead and give us this week's summary thanks peter so we're into part two of the second book uh the title of part two is called the mule and we begin our section with two newlyweds Torin and beta uh they are en route to meet Torin's family on a planet Haven at the edge of the galaxy. While there, Torn and Beta here of a foundation visit to Haven and are encouraged to take a trip to Calgan, where the eponymous Mule's uh, supposed theater of operations is. We next meet Captain Han Pritcher for his, during his meeting with the fa- current foundation mayor, Inver. Pritcher has been ordered to investigate tax invasion on Haven, but views that as less important than the Mule's current efforts on Calgan and instead goes there. Beta and Torin meet a busker on Calgan who takes an interest in Beta, leading to an encounter with the mule's guards. Beta, Torin, and the clown Magnifico are set upon by Captain Pritcher, and after interrogation decide to head towards the Foundation with the clown aboard given his knowledge of the mule. Back at the Foundation, the mayor receives some troubling news about an impending Selden crisis, the imprisonment of Pritcher for insubordination, and an ongoing attack by the Calganian. All right. A lot of stuff happening this uh, yeah. in these five chapters, which is, you know, I, I would say a welcome change from the, the typical buildups that we get in these little parts from Asimov. You know, we immediately meet a couple new characters. We're introduced to a new world, um, which is basically like a paradise world, it seems. Uh, Calgan where... is the paradise world. So Calgan is the, is the paradise world, right? And then... Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I didn't really get was like, why are we afraid of the mule at this point? So I think we just meet the mule, right? We just, the, uh, the idea that there's this kind of leader of men who's sweeping across some, you know, seemingly outside the foundation territories, but near enough to be of, of interest seems to, uh, raise the attention of our new, uh, well, of a new character, Han Pritcher, who is the uh, intelligence officer, I guess, right? So he, uh, I mean, he's definitely the smartest one that we've met so far. Mm. But, but yeah, he seems like he's kind of, you know, like similar to in the, in the, in the first book where it's like, so he's focused on something he kind of sees, the situation as it actually is and they're right. you know the mayor's kind of like well you need to follow up on these tax guys it's almost like you know yeah yes yeah, sal he's like our salver hardened character. yeah he's he's got his eyes on the prize and the mayor wants them to and he basically tells the mayor as much hey this is you know my job is to you know be the eyes and ears for the foundation and this is what's important not some bony right. baloney tax nonsense over on this faraway world what I thought was interesting was like the mayor's basically excuse for complacency was that the foundation takes care of itself, right? The, the, my takeaway was we don't have to worry because we've had four crises and there's always been something that's come up that hasn't been, you know, that, and we've always survived. And he just sits in his gigantic office, like, you know, stamping his documents while there's a real issue brewing that Han is aware of. But the difference with the foundation is that essentially there's a revolution within and somehow like they ignore the, like the weak leadership and move forward 
like someone like seizes the reins without destroying the foundation itself, right? It's not like they intentionally weaken everybody. It's just somehow they subvert like the form of government that's currently in power, right? So like with the Encyclopedists, they were the um, they were kind of undermined by Hardin as the first mayor, who then took the reins and you know navigated the where was it Caladan? Caladan was the where was the revolution? Where was the uh, the barbarous <laughs> world? Anacreon. Caladan. Anacreon. Sorry. In Caladan, where uh, where the Trades planet yeah ocean planet is uh dune. <laughs> so welcome back to inadvertent dune reference a, a dunian <laughs> slip if you will a dunian is yes, exactly a, a frankian slip or a Herbertian, yeah. Herbertian slip Herbertian slip, Herbertian there. slip there we go <laughs> now that it was in there somewhere. Now that is a is a great planet but anyway yeah so <laughs> that was so meanwhile yeah. on caladan <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they go to the planet Arrakis to uh, yeah. <laughs> no, so that like you know he Harden navigates the Anachronian threat and also establishes like a religion to help maintain peace like order right so there's like some subversions of the form of government that they are that's in power right so it goes from you know scientific committee to uh, a, a sort of dictatorship and then it becomes a theocracy of sorts and now it is uh, I guess there's a council again uh, of traitors and a lot of the power of the foundation comes from their intergalactic trade associations Um and now there's like an established mayor again, and he's not taking the threat seriously. And so basically uh, it's it's always coming down to like a man trying to do the right thing to save the foundation, right? But it seems with this mayor, he, he's kind of, uh, <clears throat> you know, they've established that he's, you know, third generation and the one guy was efficient and the next guy was brutal and he's neither. He's literally just like a bean counter. Uh, and there's yeah. all these sides where he's like, checking boxes and like ordering paper and like just doing these things that like i like yeah so like we're jumping a little bit ahead of a few other salient points that you kind of touched on and you kind of threw a lot out there i think uh um maybe let's unpack a little bit at a time here and walk are you saying it. i'm burning out early or are you, what are you yeah don't say? say all your important things up front peter you don't want to say it's a marathon so like for starters, I'd just like to, you know, because I like to do this, uh, reread our Encyclopedia Galactica. Yeah. And I guess, Peter, may, you might want to consider the success of the foundation religion and think about renaming your religion to the Encyclopedists. <laughs> so, welcome back to our Peter podcast. <laughs> So I would like to, you know, just highlight because this I find illuminating, especially looking back at these little intros from the Encyclopedia Galactica. So what they say is the mule less is known of the mule than any character of comparable significance to galactic history. So in the first sentence there, I already get that, you know, the mule will be significant. He'll be a significant uh, element or arc of the of the history of the rebuilding the galactic empire. I see what I got from that was that it was the mule was a mythos. Mm -hmm. Like it may have not been a real person. It may have just been kind of like a legend. Right. So like, kind yeah, of like, like Robin Hood, right? Like, but, Robin, but that's Robin the first part of it. The first part of sentence is less is known. The second part is comparative significance. So you're kind of getting both from that sentence, depending on which part you focus on. I didn't catch on the significance portion, but yeah, I figured when they named the the section okay. the mule. I'm also thinking the foundation well, might be a big part part of the storyline that we're going to encounter. Possibly, that is possible. <laughs> now that I think about it, so um, the second sentence they talk about every even the period of his greatest renown is known to us chiefly through the eyes of his antagonists, right? Principally through those of a young bride. Oh. So gearing up here, you know, looking back for 
uh, beta, of who's the first word of the first sentence of the first chapter of part two, um, being a, a pivotal antagonist, not necessarily Mr. Pritcher, although he may play his part, but it sounds like uh, beta is really the, the lens through which we're going to know the mule, right? You know, speaking of beta, I feel like we got our first, like, actual humanized woman in the descriptions <laughs> of her. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. actually, like, kind of moved by the description that Isamoff managed to write about this young woman, right? It's Dan. Yeah, she uh, wasn't beautiful on the grants. I, I have it lined up here if you want me to try. Yeah, reading. Dan, why don't you go ahead and read it since you're a good reader? <laughs> No pressure. She, see, she wasn't beautiful on the grand scale to others. He admitted that, even if everybody did look twice. Her hair was dark and glossy, though straight, her mouth a bit wide, but her meticulous, close-textured eyebrows separated a white, unlined forehead from the warmest mahogany eyes ever filled with smiles. And behind a sturdily, very sturdily built and staunchly defended facade of practical, unromantic hard-headedness towards life, there was just that little pool of softness that would never show if you poked for it, but could be reached if you knew just how, and never let on that you were just looking for it. Very nice. I mean, he describes her a couple of times as like plump, like just these like sort or of demeaning face, terminologies. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, I, you know, that's at the what same I time, from it too. He introduced. They introduced themselves. He, he introduces herself. And to his pet to his father and his uncle i guess and um his father's kind of leering at her and she just launches into the soliloquy where she like gives her age her height her weight like all these things and i was like there's no woman ever would just that would that would do that <laughs> it seems so implausible <laughs> yeah. just like be like oh yeah. yeah i totally weigh 110 pounds <laughs> like and i'm totally this old you know what what planet is the basis of their weight measurement is it mm. sea level on terminus is it sea level on trantor the center of the previous galaxy is there some other legacy scientific center of the galaxy that formed the kind of the basis of units of measure it's like they don't go into it at all right they just take for granted that pounds mean something or i I guess that's one of those things we're supposed to overlook yeah i think it's oh they needed a unit of measure this they need a reference reader without having to go into any more detail yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, for me, I'm, I was a little surprised to hear you say that you were moved by his description because I found almost every physical or um, description of her personality to be kind of sprinkled with these objectifications, if you will, that was, you know, I kind of glossed over it as a function of the time and we've talked about this before like you know when it was written and you know this guy's maybe some kind of nerdy you know a grad student and knows nothing about women and obviously he's come across as conceited in various you know wiki articles and things like that that i've and also uh, created a hostile environment to women a hostile environment <laughs> in yeah. the so, sci-fi community so maybe he met success and thought like oh yeah this, i can just wield my because i'm in a position of power nobody challenges me who knows maybe you know a little maybe. bit of me too you know coming out there but as the patron saint of peterism i i don't know what that's like to be frank because i can't do any wrong so mm. I've never had anything called out on me. <laughs> We're gonna have to drop this joke. It's, it's, yeah, I'm like a real jerk. There's a sprinkling of it in is, is one thing. It's like the salt shaker where the top's unscrewed. You right, and you like just dump it on. The whole like, thing yeah. falls out. That's an amazing analogy, there. <laughs> like, and it ruins it ruins everything. So that the sprinkling becomes not a sprinkling, and then it's sort of. Loses meaning. That's that's ironic because you sound really salty about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there's a few illuminations here. Yeah, they're mole mole men essentially. How he was able to mole swing men. such a such a fit, intelligent, foundation woman while well, literally being a mole man who lives underground. <laughs> um, but you can understand it when he's so nervous about about the meeting in the first place. It's like. There's this worldly foundation lady, and he's bringing her to like his his hut. I mean, you know, his... I think 
I think this is where officially the moved from science fiction to science fantasy is mm-hmm. that like the underground cave nerd gets this like worldly beautiful woman and she loves his city like she gets it she's like oh my gosh it's beautiful so yeah. yeah she like she's willing to marry down to yeah. this little right. like <laughs> goblin and endure the the lustful stares of his father of his father like, and uncle like <laughs> how creepy <laughs> and his wow. creepy old white-haired uncle right like his father's the winter soldier yeah. and uh you know lives underground and she's like fantastic Give me, give me more of this. <laughs> but before we get too far away, because we're back on kind of Fran and the uncle, and um, you know they talk a little bit about how like she's of Foundation heritage, but then you know this caught me a little off guard. They say they talk about Fran as being a modern day Lathan Devers or Devers, right? Mm-hmm. And um, is it is it Dever like? Never, or is it Deaver like, like Lever? Leave it, like leave it to Beaver, leave it to Deaver, like Beaver, Deaver, like Deaver, Deaver, like, Deaver I think it's, I think Dever, it's, Dever, I think it's Devers. I think it's Lathan Devers or Lathan Devers. Yeah, but in any case, they say, you know, this friend of ours, like is the Randu, the uncle, is talking about him. That's our modern day Lathan Devers," said Randu, gesturing with his pipe. This Fran of ours, Devers died in the slave mines 80 years ago with your husband's great-grandfather because he lacked wisdom and didn't lack heart. So mm-hmm. dude who, you know, tried to save the foundation by traveling and infiltrating Trantor and sabotaging, you know, uh, Broderick and... Uh, Bell Rios. I was leaving out the R before, but I think it's Broderick and Bell Rios. Dude gets sent to the slave mines. Like, what is going on? Mm. Like, how? Whose slave mines are these? Are well, these? exactly. You know like, did, what, did the, did the, the foundation the send them to the slave mines? mines? Exist. Yeah. It's just yeah, bizarre. Slave mines don't seem very progressive for foundation. No. That sounds like an Anacreon thing. Do they give a time frame from when? The first part ends to when the second part begins. I, I found it. So when uh, when Han Pritchard goes to see the mayor, it's in the 293rd year of the foundational era. Early in season one, if you recall, Peter, and I know, Dan, you you listened through our our struggle. Mm-hmm. What? Are... When I was stalking Russ before I murdered him, <laughs> right, yes, right. and took <laughs> and took his place, <laughs> assumed his place. Yes, um, we were trying yeah. to figure out what the heck do they call the Termininians, right? The Terminites, the Terminars. <laughs> I like, I like termites. The, the, the termites. Yeah, Terminites. Yeah. And so we hear on uh, at least page one ten of of my version that they are actually called foundation errs is the name for those of the foundation. I was a little disappointed, honestly. I agree. I, I don't like it. I don't love it. I want, mm-hmm. I want the Terminati. Terminati is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> I, I didn't catch that, but um... yeah. So the quote actually, so this is interesting. So this is, points to a little bit of that uh competition and this or the the delineation between the foundation and the trade organization and the quote is fran a man named fran and he says he's a one-man band the foundationers are not fit models for an honest trader t-r-a-d-e-r i wish they used a different word than trader like merchant, like one that didn't sound exactly like traitor. No, no, that wasn't a homonym for somebody who's actually <laughs> right. doing what they're doing, which is also being a traitor and not paying taxes, rebelling against <laughs> well, the government. True, yeah, I guess maybe that was a play on word. And and another, you know, another mystery kind of tied to what we talked about in uh, the first part of the book is how much bloodshed, right? 
we talked about like can they get away without bloodshed and we know they didn't because they talked in the in the part one story story arc they talked about having you know being subject to the enclosure and and bel rios taking out foundation ships but they're saying they lost in total half a thousand ships 500 ships and half a million men so like 500,000 people died in that part one galaxy, you know, Galactic Empire meets Foundation. Right. Um, Which is not insignificant, right? That's, right. They make that yeah. out to be a big deal. Mm. All these young men, Foundationers going off to die, you know. Yeah. And I think the next, kind of the next on the list in at least order of the book is this idea of like dissension between elements of the foundation. And I think what you're alluding to is this kind of, it's mentioned when they visit the father and father-in-law and uncle in the first chapter is these traitors are like anti-foundation, right? They're like, they've been to foundation and they respect the idea of foundation, but they're anti like the current state of how the foundation is being run. So they've almost like quietly factioned themselves uh, away from the central foundation um, kind of operational climate, if you will. They're avoiding ta paying taxes to the foundation. They're basically rebelling against the foundation. Right. They, Not because they don't believe in the foundation, but they don't believe that it's being handled properly by the people who are currently in charge, right? Yeah. But I, when you meet when you meet the mayor, I can't say is that terribly surprising. He you know when they come into chapter two and he's like, you know, everything's so formal and they have to use a certain verbiage and it's your excellency and he's got to wear the right outfit and it's very much like well you'd imagine the empire to be in right. sort of prior times you know right and that was one of the things that like you know i think that duality is intentionally set up by asimov you know mm -hmm. the book is called foundation and empire the first half the first half of the book is basically like this is why the foundation or this is why the empire is failing now i'm drawing the parallels with the way that the foundation is setting up because this is kind of the tendency in power bureaucratification. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. sure. There's too much bureaucracy that's yeah. being created within the foundation and it's preventing, you know, effective leadership essentially. And mm -hmm. that's, that's heavily implied for the reason that Tranter fell, right. Was that, you know, same reason. Basically, there was too mm -hmm. much paperwork. There was too much complexity. And they go into that pretty heavily in the last chapter when uh, the scientist sort of gives him gives him that about his reporting and everything like that. But we can circle up on that one probably a bit later. Yeah, yeah. I think the point you brought up, uh, Dan, about the the current mayor, um, I think, is very salient. And I thought of as they were describing how he's like the third inherited uh or he's the third in in his line to inherit the mayorship uh since his grandfather you know was elected so i guess this brutal but efficient grandfather got elected and then his fail son you know took the uh and i immediately thought of your your comment about the fail son uh, <laughs> so he had a, his first fail son was the brutal leader in between and then now we've got the fail son's fail son um you know who's kind of ineffective but very precise and and good at like finding those um oxford commas and scratching them out <laughs> in his reports you know and uh so it to me it reflected like a shift in the idea of the political philosophy of the foundation, right? They they evolved from like a a committee, and I'm thinking like in the U.S., you know, these small townships organized around like small committees, and it was like everybody joined at the town hall, and they had these kind of open discussions, right? And they could govern at a very local level by committee. But then at a certain point, you have to kind of put somebody in charge, and that's when, like, Salver Hardin comes in, right? And he comes 
comes across, takes control from the council, and he leads the foundation towards, uh, you know, the like the next higher level of organization and strength. Right. Which and seems semi-democratic, in, right? right? Yeah, semi-bureaucratic, but, like, even if- but it's not... Uh, it's bureaucratic when, like, I think when the organization rules and the individual doesn't matter. I think it, it's not quite there yet under Salver Hardy, right? Yeah, no, I think it was semi-democratic as well. Oh, semi-democratic, but, yes. It was yeah. It was democratic. Right, because there was always this threat power, that he right. was going to get kicked out of office, right? Until he kind of, like, cinched things with the Anacreon Right, um, even situation. though he came in by a coup, right? Effectively. Yeah, even though somehow he th- overthrew it, somehow he reinstituted some kind of republic. Right. They at the same know? time yeah. ceded, the council at the same time ceded power to him. So he became kind of like a strong leader that was acknowledged by the council in a way. So he was almost endorsed by his predecessor, like the handing of the torch, if you will. And then he retained power for a long time. But even at Hober Mallow's time, he was still became an elected official, right? Um but he was a traitor, right? So then these these T R A D E R traitors are kind of you know rolling through the the leadership of the uh, of the foundation. Now we're at a point where, and this is highlighted in the book and brings up another point that you that you covered quickly, but I think is worth digging into. The series of crises evolved. Like the first three were individual leaders that saw what was going on and kind of lifted the foundation through these crises on the, on the last one that they faced against the empire, they didn't do anything, right? The empire killed itself off. Basically the empire um, imploded. They didn't do anything to make it implode. It just imploded on its own. So they've they've moved away from these first three crises where individual actors played a key role to this fourth crisis where they're just now like along for the ride, right? And the mayor, the current mayor, in Inber Inber, what's his name? Inber. Inber. Mm-hmm. He he like brings this up with Han Pritchard. He's like, Well, like we don't have to worry about that. We don't need to send capable men out to do the these, you know. Um, scouting missions because history is going to take care of us, right? It's just going to take care of itself. Right. right. But at the same time, he's kind of antagonistic by perpetuating his legacy as the mayor under the, you know, under the guise that, um, that he has some kind of like granted authority from the people, but mm-hmm. he's really just another fail son and kind mm-hmm. of heading down the wrong path. So there's this multiple, you know, uh, things at play here in this dynamic of again the internal conflict building with the trade between the traders and the current foundation bureaucracy, and then mm-hmm. this external contact conflict with the mule out there doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can get to the part with that that Peter liked. So we they travel to the the uh, the fabulous honeymoon they take <laughs> to the planet, and uh, there's a that's Caliban, right? Caligan. Yeah, it's Caladan in your mind. Peter. <laughs> the one thing I wanted to point out before we left the the mayor, which they they brought up, is that he does not smoke. And it was like, except for on occasion. But, but Dan, well, how, do you know? how do you know? How do you know? Inevitable yeah. Adam Flash for the disposal of dead tobacco, and it's like nobody smokes when they're with him, and he doesn't smoke, and it was like, it's clear there's nothing wrong with this guy. Yeah, who doesn't <laughs> smoke? He doesn't smoke. They don't smoke that sweet, sweet vegan tobacco. He eats candies, which is ridiculous. <laughs> what is this? The Great Depression? <laughs> so, but if you look at like books and, and movies of the time, it's like everybody's smoking. And I, I think you're right, Dan. I think that this is a way of Isomov to say, look at this freak. Dude doesn't even smoke. Doesn't even smoke. Right? I mean, Beta's meeting is her 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 in law for the first time, and she's fired up a cigarette. She's not there like seven minutes, and she's like just smoking a cigarette right in his face. And it's kind of like just after long space travel, I'm sure you're adjusting to an atmosphere. You're just like, oh, I've been waiting 
four <laughs> hybrid space jumps for the cigarette. Are you <laughs> kidding? You know they're smoking in space. It's like the airlines. <laughs> well, they've got these. Uh, so this is like, Dan, to your point, the first occurrence of our most outlandish nuclear device. Yeah. <laughs> The nuclear <laughs> ashtray. Ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> it's the inevitable part. I thought it was really funny. The his de- the mayor's desk lasts that almost inevitable atom flash for the disposable dead tobacco. Of course, atomic ashtray. Yeah, who doesn't have their atomic ashtray handy at all times? Right? <laughs> Do you think there's like a well, mini mushroom then, cloud that occurs when they blow yeah. up the cigarette? <laughs> like two two days two pages later, he's draw- sketching like doodles on his paper and basically throws the paper in the garbage and says mayor felt drew with 24 strokes of a stylus drew six squares and hexagonal arrangements upon a blank top sheet of a pad which he tore off folded neatly in three parts and slipped into the waste paper slot at his right hand it slid towards a clean and silent atomic disintegration it's like (laughs) nuclear paper shredder furnace or something for his doodles because you know how sensitive like his doodles doodles cannot get out we can't get let the people see a piece yeah. of paper that is totally yeah. unattributable to the mayor. But no, it's so there's I more than later. And then so the guy at the mayor's desk with all these atomics around him is slowly making them <laughs> impotent, both literally and in their action. Yeah, the one other part that I found funny is in the, the section at the end where the he's with the other scientists and. The, and the, there's all this the things about he's ignoring all the customs and he's not wearing the right outfit and whatever and he's like smoking the cigar in the in the mayor's presence which no one does and then <laughs> he's smoking the cigar and he's basically he said his cigar a tattered dead ruin was finally disposed of a new cigar groped for and lit <laughs> the smoke puffed out violently it's like he's not even smoking cigars chains like the first thing I do after I'm done smoking a giant cigar is just immediately <laughs> light up another cigar one. fire it off just like take it to this extreme end like okay fine everybody smokes okay great like Dude. with chain smoke like lighting a cigar new cigar with the, the burnt end of another cigar and then firing smoking it another whole cigar that's how you know he's the coolest <laughs> like, He's not a big like, like a big loser like the the mayor. Yeah, it's just like the it's like the the like the the emissary is just like mouthfuls of of like of snuff and like just I was reading it. I'm just like wow. I don't know if they're just trying to make a point that like he's he's so overthrowing all of the custom by smoke like chain smoking. But I thought that that was impressive that he That's was hilarious. Fire up a cigar, smoke I mean, the whole thing, and then immediately reach for a new cigar and fire it up. I think it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something. I mean, you do have to admit that smoking is pretty cool, guys. I think it would. The only way it could get cooler is if he had like a little snuff, like <laughs> both sides his of his lower lip, a cigarette in each nostril. And he was smoking a cigarette. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sweating profusely. Like ridiculous nicotine poisoning. Like curl in the fetal position. That was he's, the got of, he's smoking while he's got patches on. <laughs> With patches, uh, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Universe Tobacco 2021, 1953. It's, <laughs> it's man, every orifice is just being... <laughs> And as he got up from the table, he slipped back on his Marlboro Man jacket. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a look. It's a caricature, but right. but so yes, they really laid it on thick with the tobacco this this time around. But my I wanted part to, was when they transition to your favorite part where they are on the honeymoon, um, and um, I'll get the phrase here because it, it, it was right up your alley. So basically. They're sun tanning because there's it's it's a paradise planet and they're sunbathing and they don't have that and so he's basically Beta is apparently wearing a robe which is which is very very class classy but Torin they're basically lecturing about overdoing it with the sun and he said Torin was of a dying red star despite three years of the foundation sunlight was a luxury and for four days now his skin treated beforehand for ray resistant had not felt the harshness of clothing except for the brief shorts yeah so he's basically wearing my uniform 
dancing around in a speedo all day, yeah. every day, <laughs> all day, every day, four straight I, days. He's I probably the most to, sunburned. I love that they had to put in that he had to be radiation treated. I, I just imagine him being like sprayed with like a fine <laughs> mist of like silver nitrite or like lead based paint, lead based paint. <laughs> from Elizabeth the first. Yeah, her, yeah. her formula. <laughs> Carried down like through the ages. He's all crusty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, this yeah. is great. And it was interesting because, you know, we also see that despite all these kind of far-fetched um, future technologies, uh, Isimov did foresee that uh, cell phones would happen someday, I guess. Because mm. when uh, Torin is doing his thing, with uh with this clown and protecting the clown he directs the guards to get his cell number at the hangar <laughs> nice i think they meant prison cell <laughs> <laughs> i thought i thought they meant like that like it was like like they said at the hangar it's like literally like people go in and they park their thing it's like a it's like a it's kind of like a <laughs> it's like a space trailer park essentially from what the the layout is where they park there and they just live in their spaceship while they're there so because the next sure. sentence he says it Water's is registered under the name beta so mm-hmm. i thought that he just you know had like sugar mama paying his cell phone bill for him <laughs> <laughs> she is of the foundation right yeah well that's that's part of it because that that you know that's how they got you know, flew on there because they were saying originally like if one of the Haverites went over there they, they were like podunks they would know and uh, but she's a, of the foundation so she her accent is is uh you know worldly so she can go there without seeming like uh like what's his face from the first book whose name escapes me so not only data thick but she's also loaded yeah <laughs> well she's a, she's of the hober mallow line so there's got to be yeah. some inheritance flowing down through those t- yeah. trade uh, royalties and stuff, right? That they're still, I mean, they're, the Corellians are probably still buying replacements for all those yeah, two-year appliances, <laughs> right? So much. She's just milking the last of that tin inheritance that's been rolling down the pipe for Sweet. hundreds Sweet. of years or wherever. Authentic yeah. tobacco foil tin, right? That's right. Yeah. You need that top foil, otherwise your turkey dinner's going to go bad. Yeah, well, you know, Beta, as a woman in the in the series, would know these things because... You know, she it's would. Like, it's 1952. She would know how to poorly wrap up some food in the fridge. Yeah, Jesus. Well, if you're on a long trip to Calgan, <laughs> you got to keep all that tobacco taste out of your, out of your, uh, <laughs> your turkey. Yeah, it's just chain smoking in the in the ship. I don't know if you have an air yeah. vent for that, but no, I think. And then you know they, you know it's it's interesting that that um, you know throwing back to what you said about the the galactic section in the beginning because the way the clown it comes about is that they see him you know doing doing his act or whatever essentially yeah. doing his performance to try to get coins or credits whatever five credits that they're going to give him and he all of a sudden is just like i don't want your money like he has some sort of prescient knowledge that beta is the one that he's looking for to help him and all of a sudden he's like super serious i had one other mystery that we had kind of touched on last week about the mule and we were kind of honest, what, what, why do they call him the mule? And so, um, Han Pritchard in, the, in his, his conversation with the mayor basically says he has no name other than that of the mule, a name reportedly applied by himself to himself and signifying by popular explanation, his immense physical strength and stubbornness of purpose. It seems like kind of throwing back to the beginning too. He's very mysterious, and the reason why the they're so interested, you know, in taking Magnifica with them is because they and why the the cops are so much after him is because he actually saw the mule. As a result, he's uh, you know of high importance intelligence wise because he has some information that no one else really apparently has. I'm wondering if this is like a um, don't look behind the curtain at the great and powerful Oz kind of situation. Like the mule is really nothing like how he's described at the beginning of the book. He's not or he's not immensely powerful or that, you know, he may not even exist. Right. Um, that the story with the clown, the name of the that chapter is the mutant. Is the clown the mutant? Maybe. I mean, he's clown talks about how he holds him up, you know, by his by his his finger holding his 
belt loop and he's jangling him up and down while he sings the verse and he's can shoot he kill people with his eyes like he sounds like you know he's this ridiculous superhero type folk tales sleep tall yeah paul bunyan-esque kind of character and tall you might tales. be onto something that the clown might be just uh it's interesting the way he you know the the, the cops kind of come up to to Torin and he you know stands up and mentions look i'm kind of half bluffs i'm from the foundation you can't kill me because i'm a foundation man and you're gonna get you're gonna get it and then scares off the cops and then they go back with the the clown to their ship and he says you know bring the mule have him come get him and then they go to the ship and then start asking the clown questions and Pritchard's there and then all of a sudden it's like all this information about the mule starts coming out but to Peter's point you know how much of that is real and how much of that is is a myth you know he 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 knows he's the only person the clown knows Magnifico knows he's the only person who's ever seen the mule so literally he can say whatever he wants and no one will know any of the wiser so it could be that you know he's making all this up he could be that he's in on it with the mule it could be anything you know yeah, there was a. I have a theory that it was the mule, you know, that like, mm. oh, maybe it's just like part of the ruse. It's a Kaiser Soze type situation. Yeah, like you know, not Kaiser Permanente. This is the mule, <laughs> and you know, Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> that, that was one of the things. He pulls Welcome off the, to uh, our back to our. Uh, Let's go back to our health insurance podcast. Apparently, no, but I mean it, and then. You know, Pritchard shows up. Who's kind of it's it's a throwback with regards to how he is, you know, working outside the system in a certain way. He goes to the mayor, and the mayor's like, "Well, you know, we have this bureaucracy, and you're subject to it, and I give you these these rules to investigate these tax evaders." And he's like, "This is nonsense. I'm here to actually do legitimate work for you, and I don't want to be on some errand." What's happening on Calgan? And the mayor's like nonsense you know and he goes anyway but he's right on the money about where the where the action's at so i'd like to change the answer that i gave to a question earlier in our podcast when we talked about who we associated ourselves with um and you know i originally thought pyrene was like a reflection of myself but i see i see that han pritcher is probably more of a reflection of my <laughs> outward self oh i i thought you were going to be the mayor arranging the uh like the ships on or the uh chairs drawing hexagons like arranging the deck chairs while the titanic's sinking kind of thing. <laughs> right. it's right. literally <laughs> scribbling like, hexagonal deck chairs. Aren't right. you're not wearing the right cloak it's appropriate though i mean i get to see a sense from him he's just so when he, he meets them you're kind of like well is he you know now he that he is breaking the law and they said he was going to be subject to whatever if he insubordinates some more he's insubordinated by going to calgan he's almost like a rogue operative at this point where he knows he's he's driven by his knowledge that it's almost like what is his plan at that point other just find out what's going on and then report back but i think he's trying to get get to those sweet slave mines that (laughs) diverge spent his retirement at Probably. <laughs> or he withered away. Well, I that they're salt mines. As a patriot, right? Yeah, give I him liberty. A patriot. Give him liberty and give him death. And give apparently, him death. Well, <laughs> after, after hard labor first, right? First hard labor and then death. Give me liberty or give me hard labor for a, me- a good many years and then death. That's followed by sweet the sweet release of death. Um, and it, and then he. You know they they make is they make I guess that that they decide they're going to go back to the foundation with the clown. And was that an idea to try to bring him to say, "Hey, look, here he is. He'll tell you that the mule's legit, and you should listen to me." I don't know what Pritchard's plan is at that point. Yeah, it looks like at the end of that section, right? It there everybody's like, like they're letting us get away, and they're like Beta's, you know, questioning like why, like why did they let us walk with the with the guy who's seen the mule and everybody's kind of suspicious and Pritcher says something like, Hmm. Yeah. He's, uh, he's ready for the foundation already. He's one step ahead of us. Um, he's letting it, he's letting us go on purpose, right? There's no, 
we're not like pulling a fast one here. It's part of his plan. So um, maybe they still, there's still justification for them to kind of go through with it because there's maybe a chance to work some angle in the future, he thinks. I don't know, but it's definitely suspicious and he immediately kind of registers that, yeah, this is too easy. He certainly sounds mythical the way he's described as having these like, you know, superhuman powers. Oh yeah, so they had the the broadcast they had the broadcast where they mentioned that that uh you know his the clown was taken in passing, you know, in the news without knowing what it is, and then they find out later that um you know, like Peter said, the the mule's onto them. And um, you know, brings us to the final chapter where, you know, the the scientist is there giving it to the mayor. Um, and we find out a bunch of revelations. There's a lot that happens in that chapter. Why don't you give us a rundown, Dan? I was waiting for my son to flush the toilet and run out of the out of the room, which he did. So now I can come off mute. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you know, there's with with um with Pritchard's with Pritchard's incidents with the the mayor, they go through a lot of details about how you know he's got to wear the right clothes and he's got to have the right authority to go in there and he's got to have you know the the proper tone and he's got to you know follow all the mayor's customs. And meanwhile, you know, we get to the last section and um you know the guy just storms in the door. And the mayor's like gardening or whatever he's doing, you know, clearly up to not not with his finger on the pulse. And he mentions about how he knows about these things and he doesn't buy that. He doesn't buy that. This is an emergency because he's aware of the situation here and he's aware of the situation here. And ultimately, he's just rolling in, obeying, disobeying all the laws of the customs. And he's you know reading, reading the mayor, the riot act, essentially about how he's no he knows a bunch more information and the thing that I thought that was it, the most thing I thought the most interesting about about it that was sort of passed over was that he said that you know with the first Selden crisis the Selden appeared both times and people were there and saw it but even though the next two Selden crises were solved separate from that he says that Selden still appeared and oh yeah you're right i missed that nobody part. Either nobody saw it, or I don't know if he saw it, um, or if he just figured out that that it happened. I thought that was like really very interesting. I don't know if they just were going to mention it in passing, or whether it was actually like you know information, because it was kind of like you'd wonder what Selden's opinion would be of what was going on, and he intimates that that was something that happened, and just that they weren't paying attention, or that you know no one else was. He was the only one who figured it out. Yeah, it kind of illuminates this potential, you know, deviation from the path, right? Like, it, you know, Selden had this whole thing worked out, and he expected crises at these points, and he hit hit the mark on, like, the first handful that happened. But then now crises are happening misaligned with his plan. So how far off course are we kind of deviating and is it recoverable to, you know, allow the foundation to publish their encyclopedia after a thousand years of effort? Like the uh, little snippets at the beginning of the sections indicate. Seems like there's some threat to the course of action, right? And is the future galactic empire really what was at the tail end of his vision or his calculation? Uh, or does it become something else, right? Yeah. Um, so there's two things that I want to just mention real quick. Um, I'll touch on Jay's first. I'm wondering if like another empire is really what is going to happen or if there's going to be some kind of like massive decentralized kind of uh, unity that will come like, will be like the end goal of the foundation, right? It'll be like, instead of there being like this centralized authoritarian government that, you know, rules everything with a central bureaucracy, these things will be much more scattered throughout the, like the galaxy with kind of like regional governments that all kind of share a common value system. 
and are interconnected through trade instead of like through, I don't know, an iron fist. <clears throat> um, the other thing is that I'm not sure, like every Selden crisis has kind of been marked by internal and external pressures that have forced a particular course of action in the foundation. I'm not sure we have a really strong internal pressure. Um, there seems to be like some unrest with the way that the government is run, but it, and it seems to be forming a kind of revolution in the kind of outer worlds of this foundation empire, for lack of a better term. Yeah, so I'm just not sure that we have all the things we need yet to be like, yeah, this is another Selden crisis. Well, I mean, you mentioned this, the Selden crisis, whether this is one or isn't one, becomes, you know, and whether you believe, you know, what it, what's the scientist's name? Ms., I guess, the guy the who comes in at the end, like, with the dirty with the dirty cloak and the, you know, the cigar chain smoking. and uh, But he basically says four months, you know, four months for the Selden crisis to happen. And the mayor's kind of like, what, what, what? Uh, but I know that this is going on on this planet, and I know this is going on this planet. And, you know, he has, like, his paperwork, you know, that I guess maybe since it's a foundation, they're taking on, it's almost like Shades of the Empire. Well, it's a it's a meta right. investigation of the world affairs by reading other investigations of world affairs without actually doing any of the work. And he thinks he knows what's going on. And it's like, at the end, oh, well, that, and oh, there's an attack going on right now. And, you know... There's nothing. He was completely unaware, and right. he's losing his mind over it. And then they're like, "Well, uh, Pritchard's in jail, waiting execution. You might want to ask him for information about the mule, since he's, he's apparently atta attacking your foundation at present, and you have no idea about it." The other thing I meant to mention that I thought was kind of funny is when he bursts in, he's gardening, and mayor, the mayor's like, "Nobody interrupts me in my garden." And they're like, "He gives, he grants himself a two-hour." break for gardening every afternoon weather permitting and that's basically the most important man running the government has two hours every afternoon to just be by himself in this garden and somebody bursts in with some important information he's like how dare you nobody comes and sees me in my garden i mean self-care is important right it's important to have yeah. boundaries even mm -hmm. if you are the most important man in the universe like you would know. myself <laughs> but thank you for your recognition dan if anybody would know the strains of being a very important person, you would, you would be the one. But yes. You know, Dan, I think there may be a future in my church for you. I don't know. I'm just, uh, it's just a feeling I have. Yeah, we'll see. I'm, it, I mean, it just feels like the foundation is repeating the mistakes of the empire. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's where we are. And mm. that, that's where the split in the book is going to happen, right? It's like, yeah. this is the right way to handle this situation. This is the wrong way. Well, it seems like you have characters like Pritcher and like like Miss who exist in the reality-based community who are kind of like running around with their hair caught on fire because they're like, all these things are happening. And the mayor's like, well, according to my documents, and he's like, I have these reports. And the Miss is like, Every report I send gets up through 20 layers of management and then goes back down with 20 layers of management. And it, all the data is tripped out of it before it ever reaches your desk. Like all the things you're reading have no relation to what's actually going on. Yeah, they've been because they've been sort of sanitized and whitewashed. Yeah. And as a result, the information you're getting is worse than useless because you think you have this great information and you got nothing. And meanwhile, the Selden crisis has been going on and we, we've, you haven't been paying attention to the proclamations of Selden. And oh, by the way, there's a Selden crisis coming right down the street. And by the end, when he hears about the attack, it's kind of like he's and clearly it's been established that he's not a man, a man of action or a man who could rise to the occasion. And like he's literally just like quaking in his boots at the. Uh, you know, at, at all the things he has to deal with in the reality-based community now. We got warned early in this section that um, that he sees, like, you know, he, like, has these uh, whitewashing men, uh, ideas of his behavior, right? Uh, hesitance he sees as being careful or caution, right? And, like, 
he has these kind of different definitions of not taking action that are acceptable, right? He makes them acceptable in his mm-hmm. mind. I found the part here. So in the begin in the page one twenty here, he's uh, we're talking about Inber, and he says to him. A stilted geometric love of arrangement was system, an indefatigable and feverish interest in the pettiest facets of day-to-day bureaucracy was industry. And indecision, when right, was caution, and blind stubbornness, when wrong, was determination, you know? So he has, like, all these, like, alternate definitions of his behavior and or the outcomes of his behavior that are like commendable. Right. Even though he's just like mm-hmm. a lump on a log, basically. I thought it was just distilled down when, when Miz is kind of letting him know that the Selden crisis is upon us. It's been four months. And like he, he's all upset and he basically goes with a sudden spasmodic recrudescence of ferocity, he screamed, will you get off my desk and let me put it in order? How do you expect me to think? <laughs> and basically he's like rearranging his desk, like putting his inbox in the right place. He's like arranging the papers. It's just like, let me, this is how I, let me just arrange a few more papers. I'm sure this will basically solve my problem by just, let me just draw a couple hexagons and, and uh, correct a couple, a uh, couple uh, hang on hanging clauses or uh, you know, split infinitives, and then all of a sudden, Selden crisis will be put off. Just a, there's a few more like object pronouns that are improperly used in the prepositional phrase, and then you know the, the Selden crisis will write itself. All I'm hearing is this poor man's OCD kicked in in high gear. Yeah, he got faced with a highly stressful situation. Yeah. Everybody's just, you know, here's the rules, you know, everybody's following all the rules and, you know, it's very comfortable for everybody who's inside the system, but it's very vulnerable to any sort of exogenous shock, which is now bearing down upon them, you know, on writing these reports and making sure they say the right things that none of the actual useful information gets inside of the bubble. And then somebody comes in with the needle and. So uh, do we have any predictions for what's to come? Pain. Pain. <laughs> What's in war. the foundation? Pain. I'm gonna say war. My guess is, my guess is that uh, Pritchard will they'll bring Pritchard out because he, you know, had some sort of. It's kind of like he's the Odom Bar of the situation where he had some understanding of who this guy is. Jason, do you have any theories for the, what's coming up next? So I think, um, you know. By the end of this, it's pretty clear that uh, that the mayor is, you know, his continuance is under under heavy scrutiny by <laughs> this uh, psychologist who seems to be becoming a pivotal character, right? He's like this potential bridge into um, the clown's Magnifico's... Um, psyche and his information you know in his brain on the mule and are we going to learn through you know through ebbling miss kind of what what the path is but then there's han pritchard running around you know you know belligerently fighting for the cause then there's our pivotal bride who is the one who through whom we know the mule so there's kind of a lot brewing I think that mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's no kind of clear view, and even if there was, like you've said before, Dan, it's like the the foundation always seems to kind of turn out a little differently than you expect. So, I mean, I mean there's I definitely think... going to be a conflict, right? There's a there's an armed kind of insurrection coming, but I don't know where the foundation's going to end up, right? Because there's obviously some systemic problems that have occurred over the last hundred years or so about how the organization is run as a whole. And it is it is larger and more complex than it was. And, you know, Harry Selden, not Harry Selden, um, Salver Hardin's situation, yeah. right? Um, and so it's going to require a more complex solution or maybe, maybe even a more simple, like a simplified solution of like, 
decentralization of authority, right? Because the problem is that you keep having these like central authority figures that are being propped up by these institutions and they're either like completely impotent or they're, you know, so concerned about maintaining power that that's all that they do, right? That's what happened in the empire. Um, and now it's happening in the foundation. So you're talking about some kind of systemic issue that's going to have to be addressed. And I don't think we're going to fall back onto, you know, the religion of the foundation or even the fantastic religion of Peterism um, to kind of sub solve the issues. I think Miz has kind of a hardened type of figure to him and he's just, he's just cutting through the BS. Um, which, which the foundation di direly needs at this point, since it seems like it's all just, just ethereal nonsense. But at the same time, the, like you pointed out before, there <clears throat> I like these portions where you kind of have the, the the last five chapters. There's been a tremendous amount of character development, and there's a couple different intertwining story arcs, and now you have the state the the table set for a, a conclude a Selden crisis, a conclusion, and then the next phase of the foundation. So I think there's a lot. The table is set up very nicely for the next phase, uh, and I think we'll. Have some exciting uh, reading to look forward to next time. Yes. All right. Well, I've been your host for this evening, Peter, along with my colleague, Dan and Jason. And we'll uh, talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Good night, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye.